Bitcoin is dead. It's over for crypto. I want to be an astronaut or to be Indiana Jones or to go live in the jungle with Jane Goodall and the gorillas. Oh my God, I just lost my rent. No, I'm the wolf of all streets. It's a complete joke. Uh, RSI, OBV, MACD, supply and demand. Shut up, DJ. Stay in your lane. Welcome to Crypto Trading Secrets with Benjamin Pyrus. Hey everyone, today we have Scott Melker, who also goes by the Wolf of All Streets on Twitter. Scott went from an interest in archaeology to a career in music to crypto. Scott is a well-known crypto trader and investor who also creates content in the crypto space, which includes hosting his own crypto podcast called the Wolf of All Streets Podcast. Hey Scott, how's it going? Going great, man. How are you? Thanks so much for having me on. It's been a wild couple of weeks. You're well known as the wolf of all streets on Twitter, but I figure most people in crypto probably still call you Scott, right? I would imagine so. I get a few people who call me wolf, which still kind of freaks me out. But indeed, I think most people still go by my name since it is at Scott Melker still on Twitter. <laughs> gotcha. Do you have any interesting backstory on like your, how you picked your Twitter name and your brand? I wouldn't say it's necessarily interesting. I think a lot of people know that I actually have a music background. That's where my blue check came from. I've been on Twitter since I believe 2009. So I've had the blue check from my music production and DJ career for, you know, nearly a decade already before even really, you know, building a, a personality, I guess, in crypto. So when I was making the transition, which was not purposeful from music crypto, alienated everyone that was following me for my music and started talking about this magic internet money and drawing lines on on charts. And I actually kind of lost half my followers. But there was a very long time there where I was learning like everyone else and trying to you know absorb everything I could on Twitter about crypto. And I would start ringing in on threads and people would generally give me the canned response, shut up, DJ, stay in your lane. <laughs> Yeah. Somebody said something, you think you're a fake wolf of Wall Street or something. And I responded, no, I'm the wolf of Wall Street. It's a complete joke, just kind of, you know, implying that nobody should be able to put you in a box. Just because you do one thing well doesn't mean that you can't do anything else well. And it's it, it quickly <laughs> stuck. So I, I basically had changed it to my name that day, jokingly. And people started, as I alluded to, calling me wolf and using it. And it just sort of became a compelling brand. And I stuck with it. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I love a good little backstory like that. Typically on the show, I aim to break things up into three segments. The first is called Finding the Bottom, where I just ask your opinions on where you think the market might be in terms of, you know, a bear market bottom for Bitcoin, which has been pretty tough to think about given the the struggles and the, the price drops in crypto in the crypto market this year, like kind of in tandem with mainstream factors like US interest rate hikes and inflation and and all that. Uh, and it's just kind of complicated things. So what do you think, just as an overview of Bitcoin's price right now? As you alluded to, I think the narrative for most of the year was the correlation between equity markets and obviously the inverse correlation with dollar strength, which is what you're really talking about when you talk about correlations with stocks or tech stocks. You're actually talking about how much of an impact the dollar is having on everything else as a collective basket. Historically, Bitcoin's been an uncorrelated asset. You know, you rate it from minus one to one, one being totally correlated, minus one uncorrelated, anything close to zero is uncorrelated. For most of its existence, Bitcoin has been about you know, 0 0.16, 0 0.1, very much uncorrelated. But we saw that 
obviously decrease as the entire world went risk off and Bitcoin dropped. So obviously, everybody was cheering for the correlation to eventually break. I think that that correlation largely broke this summer because equities continued to go down. We obviously saw Forex fall apart, the pound, the euro, the yen all decreasing. And the decorrelation was actually just Bitcoin being boring and chopping sideways, right? It didn't go mm-hmm. up or down, but everything else did. Sure. And then unfortunately, the true decorrelation then came with all of the contagion in the crypto space and most notably with FTX when everything else started to go up and Bitcoin dropped dramatically, unfortunately. So even as the dollar started to descend, which should have been a good time for any risk asset, we saw Bitcoin continue to drop because of the continued contagion. So now I think it's anyone's guess as to what's going to happen next. There's nothing that makes you uh, look stupider than giving future price predictions or calling bottoms, especially if you uh, tie them to a time frame. People love to ask the question, what do you think the price of Bitcoin will be at the end of the year? And you know, I just sort of joke that uh, my crystal ball is broken and, and I'd rather <laughs> uh, opt out of a question like that. That said, I think there are a lot of signals that Bitcoin, even with all this contagion, could be bottoming, right? And people love to point at a specific price in hindsight as the bottom of an asset, but bottoming is a process. It's usually a multi-month process, can take even longer than that. And we're starting to get the mainstream media narratives. Bitcoin is dead, you know, Mm -hmm. it's over for crypto, sort of the things you like to see when you're trying to find a sentiment bottom, right? Because you want to counter trade the general sentiment. And when people start to talk about going to zero and it's dead and we start to see people capitulate, forget this, I'm selling everything at the bottom. Those are usually signs that the bottom is near. And so depending, I think, on what does happen with equity markets, listen, if the world continues to go risk off, if we go into a long-term recession, I can't imagine a scenario, although anything's possible, where Bitcoin rises aggressively in that environment. But if things do start to even out or get better and the Fed starts to lay off the gas, I think that you know we could be seeing Bitcoin in the area of a bottom now. And so that could be anywhere between 10,000 and you know, 15,000, 16,000 where it most recently bottomed, but it's really anyone's guess. But I do think if you're a long-term investor, you still believe in the asset and you can separate the fact from fiction. The fact is nothing is wrong with Bitcoin as an asset. The fiction is that it's over and it's dead and it's collapsed, but that's largely because of things that humans built in the space to mimic the financial system that exists that were already problematic and with inferior regulatory rails. <laughs> but Bitcoin itself, if you still believe in it, you have to believe that this is a good buying opportunity to dollar cost average slowly and just wait a few years. Correct me if I'm wrong, but if I'm getting you correctly, you're more just evaluating things from a time and feel component rather than like a direct price component. Is that kind of... Yeah. And I I think that's the better approach. I've always said, even though people know me as a trader, that I'm an investor first, I believe 75, 80% of your portfolio should be investments. You should just be trading with a small portion of your stack. And if you're an investor and if you're a good investor, your time horizon is multiple years, if not multiple decades, then I don't think the price being 20, 16, 14, or 10 really matters. If the price goes to 200, 300, a million, it won't really matter if you bought it for $2,000 or $3,000 more. Sure, that makes sense. You touched on this a little bit in one of your earlier comments. How much does this whole ordeal with um, the whole situation with FDX change the, the market? I think it's changed it dramatically only because 
A, it was the biggest name because of their aggressive marketing strategy and because Sam Bankman-Fried himself was sort of the golden boy that was viewed as the legitimate player on Capitol Hill, right? Obviously, everybody knows about all of his political donations. Everybody knows that he was the one who was called to sit in Senate and Congress hearings to speak on behalf of the industry. Having that specific person be the fall guy and end up being, we can debate whether he's a scammer, a criminal, whether it's just you know negligence and poorly run business. Regardless, having him be the one to fail on such a grand stage and with such fireworks is really, really terrible for the industry. And I believe that, you know, there'll be much more contagion and fallout over the months and years from that. Just, you know, slowly bleeding out people who had exposure, thought they could survive and then don't. But that said, also, you know, there's always these massive events sort of at the bottom that cause that final capitulation, which could be what we've seen. And maybe the market can continue to rise and regrow out of that. And maybe we will have eliminated some of the leverage and the excess and the bad actors so that we can build back better in the future. Right. So if this FTX situation didn't happen, do you think it's it's prolonged to the bear market at all for crypto in general? If this had not happened, I think that Bitcoin would be already trading back in the mid 20,000s. Ethereum would be over $2,000 and would be seeing sort of the benefit of the rise that has generally been occurring in stocks and other assets. Even if that's just a bull trap and it continues down to lower lows, yes, I believe that this offered a leg down that would not have happened when at the same time we would have had a leg up. How does the whole mainstream world backdrop kind of affect everything with Bitcoin right now and what what might be ahead just with like, uh, like I mentioned earlier, inflation and uh, interest rates from the U.S. Fed? Just like, uh, I can't, logic would think that that would <laughs> impact things as as well. So what do you think about that? I do think that it will continue to impact it in the future, but that right now, Bitcoin and the crypto market are trading against a black swan event and all bets are sort of off in that environment. So wherever Bitcoin does find a footing, does stabilize once again, whether that's here or lower or higher, then I believe it will once again become more correlated and we'll see it trade based on what happens with the Fed and monetary policy. And if economies uh, go downward... Uh, and there's mainstream struggles. To, uh, there's probably a dozen different scenarios, but in my mind, it might be like, okay, Bitcoin could just trend down with it, or maybe Bitcoin could eventually like decouple, uh, like like fully. I think we've seen it decouple many times in the past, and so I think that that's definitely a possibility. Like I said, things continued to trend down throughout the summer, and Bitcoin did not. Right, so I don't think the correlation is currently there. I think as long as things are somewhat stable, Bitcoin does have the opportunity to rise, even if everything else is either trending slowly down or somewhat sideways, even if things are trending up. The problem would be if there's some massive black swan event in legacy markets, if the re- recession turns into a depression, if you know there's some horrible news from wars abroad or from China, obviously then we know that when there's a horrible event, take you know March, the COVID crash, of course, of March of 2020, Everything goes to a one correlation in a situation like that and drops. But then you sort of see which are the strongest assets that rise out of that. I mean, you go back to March 2020 as an example. Yes, Bitcoin you know, bottomed on March 12th. Stocks bottomed around March 23rd. Stocks went up 2x from there, which was an extremely impressive run, historic even for the stock market. Well, Bitcoin went from under 4,000 all the way to 69,000, roughly a 17x. So 
as things bottom and as the contagion clears out and as sort of the negative news is processed, what asset class do you actually want to be in for the next bull run? Obviously crypto to me. That kind of finishes out the segment with like my last burning question that kind of I'll play on your your 2020 comments. It, you, you said stocks went up 2x, correct? Yeah. So if stocks continue to bleed out at that point in 2020, do you think Bitcoin would have bucked the trend and and done what it, it did what it did or gone up? Or what do you think would have happened in that case? Because that's kind of what I'm thinking is like, okay, what if the, the future is different in that regard? Does that make sense? I do think it would have gone up because there were so many encouraging factors, so much interest in the crypto space, so many people building things. But the story isn't really about whether stocks went up or down. Yes, they ended up doubling from there. The story, obviously, is that there was historic money printing and that people were infused with cash and we saw where they wanted to put that cash when given the option, right? And clearly, Mm -hmm. Bitcoin was the choice that they wanted rather than putting it into stocks and bonds and and other assets. I don't think we're going to see another period of historic money printing like that, but I do think that people realized once again, that when things sort of normalized and there was money on the table, that certainly younger investors were going to start pouring it into crypto. And I don't think that's going to be any difference. The thing right now is that we just have wholly negative narratives, right? Mm -hmm. There's just not much positivity surrounding the crypto space. There's still the overhanging fear of heavy-handed regulation, which we haven't gotten any sort of clarity on. So I just think there's a lot of headwinds right now. But once some of those things are clarified, like I said, and once the contagion starts to clear and people start getting more interested again, I think that it will rise much faster than everything else. So in 2020, I do th- think it would have continued to rise, just obviously would not have risen as high without all the free money. Gotcha. That makes sense. Let's jump into the next section here, which is trade secrets. And basically, I would I just want to know about your background. So, and you you touched on it a little bit in the in the intro, but can you tell me a little more about your background and like as much as you're willing to share, like where you grew up and what, what you wanted to do when you were little and stuff like that? Sure. I always wanted to do music. Actually, that's not entirely true. I wanted to be an astronaut or to be Indiana <laughs> Jones or to go live in the jungle with Jane Goodall and the gorillas when I was a kid. <laughs> but uh, most of those things didn't come to fruition. But I did actually go to the University of Pennsylvania. And rather than going to the Wharton School and studying finance like I should have, I actually studied anthropology and archaeology as my major uh, because I really legitimately still wanted to be Indiana Jones. But then I spent a few summers doing archaeological digs and realized it just meant moving a lot of rocks (laughs) in the hot sun. Um, It wasn't nearly as glamorous. And so I gave up on that pursuit knowing that there was no real future in that profession for me. But I, you know, I I had parents who stressed financial literacy. Uh, I bought my first stocks uh, when I was 13 years old, Disney and Caterpillar, uh, because I thought tractors and Mickey Mm -hmm. Mouse were cool. I at least had a superficial knowledge of markets, I think, growing up. And like I said, I, I went to the University of Pennsylvania. So even though I wasn't in the Wharton School, I did take classes there. All of my friends were in finance. It was impossible sort of not to get that bug and specifically the trading bug as well. That's when I first learned tiny bit of technical analysis. And so I traded and invested, I will say, extremely poorly for the next you know, 15, 20 years after college before getting serious about it after I transitioned out of music. So it's always been a part of what I did. And then I just happened to stumble on crypto where there's this unicorn 
hundred X pumps that I had heard about in this fantasy land and sort of got lucky being there in late 2016 and early 2017. And that's sort of the background, how I started to take my trading uh, and analysis much more seriously. Gotcha. So just a side note, which, which Indiana Jones is your favorite? Cause I, I grew up watching those two and I also wanted to be an archeologist till I was like five or six. And then I wanted to play in the NHL, but <laughs> it's a different story, nice. but I, sh- I share the Indiana Jones love. So which how do you order those? I think Raiders of the Lost Ark will forever still be the best. Temple of Doom is the worst, not counting the new ones. And Last Crusade was pretty epic and amazing. But uh, I still think the first movie is the best one. The new ones are trash. Yeah, I like the the, the Last Crusade is my favorite. It's hard to beat Sean Connery. Yeah, and Petra. And it's an incredible movie. And I've been to Petra and Jordan, so pretty epic. Yeah. That's super interesting that you actually tried archaeology because uh, I never made it that far. <laughs> so, I, I was I was pretty serious about it for a while. So you mentioned getting into crypto in around 2017. That's when I got in. Can you maybe explain like your the, the first thing that you drew you into it and maybe like a little bit more about your your stumbles and fumbles trading early on if you did have any or if you hit it big right away? It was just about dollars for me. It had nothing to do with crypto. I didn't dig into the use case. I didn't care that it was a store of value or digital gold. I had a bunch of DJ and music friends who were getting into it. For some reason, that community was kind of early on it. I was looking for something to do and I had kids and knew that I was going to be transitioning out of music. And I sort of did very well, very quickly. Mm -hmm. Well enough. It's not like I made uh, millions in a week or anything like that, but I I did enough to pique my interest, you know, in late 2016, early 2017. And I think my journey was like everyone else. So I bought Bitcoin first uh, because it was the easiest thing, but also because my friends told me I needed to, you know, buy Ethereum and buy Ripple and buy all these things. I had no idea what they were, no idea how to do it. But at that time, there was no such thing as a USD pair for these assets, there was no USDT, right? You were basically had to mm-hmm. like deposit Bitcoin, figure out how to transfer it from Coinbase or Gemini, wherever you bought it, over to Bittrex, in my case at that time, before Binance. And then you had to trade on Bitcoin pairs, right? So it was very mm-hmm. confusing. I remember right. those early days of having no idea what I was doing and thinking that I was doing exceptionally well and then flipping over on my portfolio tracker to the Bitcoin balance and realized that I was losing Bitcoin even though my uh, dollars were going up, right? Because Bitcoin was smashing <laughs> it. I didn't understand that relationship between Bitcoin and altcoins or Bitcoin dominance, things like that. And I learned the same way as everyone else. But like I said, I started very small. I've talked about this, I think, in the past. You know, I put like $3,000 into crypto and it was $20,000 a week later. You know, I just mm-hmm. hit one of those moments. I took out 10 and continued on with 10 and made a living out of it. And it was just luck. Like I said, mm-hmm. I was somewhat ignorant. It was just a time when everyone's a genius in a bull market. And I was just buying things that people were telling me about. And I would wake up and they'd be up 300% overnight. It's crazy. Yeah, I, that's bringing back some memories for me because I, uh, I remember the same thing. I was like, when I first learned about it in like mid-2017, uh, I was like, <laughs> what that wait how you, you sent you, you buy this and then you send it over here and then i was like it was such a foreign yeah, and I concept have to use that and what what does that even mean right sats come on yeah yeah and then you have to you're trading you're like okay what is this price in usd even though it's a bitcoin pair so you can track it to like because our, our we're set to think in usd terms <laughs> yeah that's that's funny that you had a 
a similar experience. Your style of trading in general, can you walk me through kind of how you've developed that, kind of what it looks like, what you look for? You mentioned technical analysis, TA, just maybe how that's developed and and uh, what kind of your strategy is, if you don't mind sharing. Well, I think it's really difficult to have a grasp of the fundamentals of a market. You know, that people get paid literally millions and millions of dollars on Wall Street a year who aren't even traders just to be analysts and figure out what a company is worth and whether it's over valued or undervalued. So what sort of drew me to technical analysis was that you can sort of believe that it's all baked into the chart and that the news is reflected there and the fundamentals are reflected there. But more importantly, technical analysis doesn't really tell you the future, but at least it offers you actionable intelligence on where to put a stop loss and where to take profit, right? It gives you a way to have mm-hmm. a plan, even if you're literally like throwing pixie dust into the air and just sacrificing unicorns to figure yeah. it out. At least I have a reason to do what I'm doing, Right. Uh, so I was always drawn to technical analysis. To be honest, what's interesting is that I used to use Ableton to produce music. And for some reason, mm-hmm. using TradingView and drawing lines on charts always sort of reminded me of the same creative process as making music. So I always sort of enjoyed it and could do it for hours and hours and hours. I don't know if that's just a strange function of my ADHD, but it was just something <laughs> I really enjoyed, drawing lines on charts right, and testing indicators. That mm-hmm. said, as far as my strategy, I mean, like probably anyone who's been trading for a long time, I've tried everything, right? Uh, RSI, OBV, MACD, supply and demands, resistance and, and support, and basically every single technical indicator. And at the end of the day, I think you eventually realize to KISS, keep it simple, stupid. And I think that most people, you know, you will look through my charts in 2016, 2017, there were five indicators and a thousand lines, and it was just a, a paralysis by overanalysis. And so I think eventually when you get good at it, you sort of can just look at a chart and see what you want. Obvious levels of interest. You can look at the volume and see how that matches up and boom, you know, draw a couple lines and, and move on, knowing that you're just making your best guess. So I'd say that at this point, my strategy, every once in a while, I'll check RSI just for a basic, simple idea of whether it's overbought or oversold and whether there's some divergence there. But mostly I just look at price and volume. Interesting. And then do you... you- you work with your own levels of support and uh, yeah, resistance. Yeah, I draw everything myself. And like I said, it doesn't matter if someone else agrees, right? It's just giving me actionable intelligence on how to approach my trades, which is why you can't really steal someone else's system or make trades based on things you see on the internet. It's also about like having the, the emotional strength to execute and actually follow through with your plan. That's actually right? the entire conversation. Right? We can talk <laughs> about charts and fundamentals and all the things, but there's a million people who are incredible analysts that get paid millions of dollars on Wall Street who, if they were asked to actually execute a trade themselves, would completely fall apart and lose everything. Because it's one thing yeah. to say, this is what's going to happen, to map it out. It's another thing to watch it go against you and allow your stop loss to hit, to not change your plan, to not get emotional about it, to not start viewing the money as, oh my God, I just lost my rent as opposed Mm -hmm. to just sort of a unit that you're looking at as part of your trading system over time. Equally difficult to say, oh my God, I'm about to hit my take profit, but it's going to go higher. I'm going to pull that and sell it for more, right? And then you know Mm -hmm. exactly what happens. It goes all the way back down and hits your stop loss Mm -hmm. because that's just the way that markets are. So yes, I would say removing the emotion and being able to execute your plan is much harder than creating the plan in the first place. And I think this applies to like, if I'm not mistaken, it, it could be applied to life in general, but you have a plan and you want to stick to the plan, but what about extenuating circumstances and how how to know if you should 
alter things based on new information or based on you know changes because everything's constantly changing. So how do you how do you handle that in your trading? I think it's Mike Tyson who said everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face or something similar to that. And I think that that's definitely true when it comes to trading. Obviously, your plan gets very quickly violated when FTX announces bankruptcy and the entire market dumps. But if you have a stop loss in place, then it doesn't really matter, right? You've accepted the amount of loss that you calculated was appropriate and your situation has changed. So I don't think it changes basically for an immediate trade. Now, if it utterly changes or violates your premise for investing in an asset, that's something that you definitely need to consider, right? Yeah, you could have been a, a huge Enron bull in their, in their days when the stock was rising. But uh, I think that seeing what happened to them, you would probably say, ah, this isn't a long-term investment that I want to be in anymore. Right. And so I think you have to obviously roll with the punches and, and with the information that's given to you. But if we're talking about individual trades, if the information changes, that's largely going to be reflected in whether the price goes up or down and hits your take profit or your stop loss. Right. I guess, I guess a more specific example would be like, what if I was trading, like, what if my target for Bitcoin was like, and this is more of a swing trade? What if it was like, I don't know, what if the target was 19,000? And then FTX happens and then it hits 19. Like, do you adjust your target based on like yeah, that information? Yeah, you have to. Yeah, okay. I, I would say so, of course. You just start, and if you're a technical analyst, you just start looking at the next level of support down, right? Just play it level mm -hmm. to level and go that way. I think that's the easiest way to not get overly emotional about it. You have it all mapped out. And if your idea is wrong and proven false, then you just start to look at the next levels of support and resistance and move from there. But sort of, on a larger scale, it's interesting because I always laugh when people say only invest money that you can afford to lose. And then like the world goes into a recession and everybody loses their job and nobody can afford to lose anything anymore. So the situations do change, right? Mm -hmm. So not even just like a situation with a price target or with an asset, but your life situation can change very drastically on extenuating circumstances, whether that's something that happens to you specifically, a health issue, an accident, or whether it's something that happens to the entire global economy as we're seeing right now. So what was once money you could afford to lose can quickly become money that you can't afford to lose. And obviously then you're forced to sell to live your life, right? So things do change. Yeah. How did you end up like figuring out your edge and figuring out what worked and like what was the hardest part for you about learning the whole trading, trading process? Well, I was a spaz like anyone else. Right. And I've gone broke a number of times because of the emotions that we talked about before. I mean, I've literally ridden things all the way down to zero because I've refused to sell and accept that I was wrong. I think for people, the real edge comes with not viewing a loss as a loss, not taking it personally if you were quote unquote wrong, because being wrong and right is irrelevant in trading. What matters is being profitable. Right. You can be wrong eight out of 10 times, but if those are eight tiny losses and you have a built in system where your gains largely outweigh your losses in size, then those two trades can make you a profitable trader or at least break even. So I think it's mm -hmm. once you finally eliminate the ego part of being wrong and accepting that you're just guessing and you have no idea what's going to happen in the future, that's where the real edge comes for, from for most traders. Gotcha. So let's head into the last segment, which is the next bull run. So if... And I say if because nothing's sure, nothing's a sure thing. But if we have another crypto bull run, how will you or how might you, if you are trading or not trading or whatever, how will you figure out 
when the the next bull run has started, like how will you know? What what are your metrics for for knowing? Hey, we're we're in another bull run. Well, from a charting perspective, it's somewhat easier. Is it? Obviously, we're in a series here as far as price of lower highs and lower lows. And once that series is broken, you have a technical break of the bear trend and a move into a bull market. Right now, the last lower high, I believe, is right around 25,200, something like that. So it would take effectively a break of that level to start even talking about a bull market. Other people use moving averages as trend breaks, right? So maybe a break above the 200 moving average on Bitcoin on the daily, that would be around 21,739 on the weekly. That's around 24,000. So everybody has their own strategy on what they determine is a flip from a bear trend to a bull trend. But I think that as far as sentiment is concerned, it's going to be pretty clear when prices start to rise, stop reacting to bad news, people start getting interested again. Maybe we start seeing some more good news. But if we see a true bull run, Uh, What will inevitably happen is that most people will be in disbelief. They won't think it's really happening. It'll be 25,000, 32,000, 40,000. And then wherever those people start to buy in, that'll probably be the local top. Sure. So they'll they'll buy the top just like everyone bought the top at 65 and 69. And then price will adjust again and rinse and repeat. So for me, like I'm looking, I don't see anything right now that indicates bull market except for negative sentiment and counter trading that. But that could just be give us a temporary bounce. Things could go up for a little while. Things could trade sideways. I just don't see, you know, the case for Bitcoin going to zero, 3,000, 6,000 that a lot of people are already talking about at this point. But as far as strategies for the bull market, I'll do exactly what I did last time, but more aggressively, which is detach my passion for the market from my financial need and take a hell of a lot more profit. Now, I did take a lot on the last run up. I did not in 2017. So that was a lesson that I learned. But I think that scaling in and out of positions removes a lot of the emotion from it. So, you know, if we start hitting 30 and 40 and stuff, I will become more of a slow seller than I will buyer. And certainly if we're starting to break 69, 70, 80, 100, I'm not saying I'm selling my whole positions. I have core positions and everything that I will just continue to hold no matter what. But if I'm trading it, I will be probably pretty quick to take profit, which is always how I've been. Mm Mm-hmm at least in the last few years. How can you explain some of the differences in your strategy when it's a bull market versus well, bear market? Well, in a bear market, you dollar cost average in, which you should be doing anyways, but you're dollar cost averaging, you're buying dips, you're slowly re-entering the market, you buy the blood, all the memes that you have. But in a bull market, you're supposed to be doing the opposite, which is slowly taking prof- profit and exiting, knowing that there's probably going to be another bear market that eventually comes. That means you'll sell some things too early but it also means that you'll sell some things just in time and it'll all average out in your favor. So I think what tends to happen is people sell the bottom in a bear market because they finally just capitulate or give up and they buy the top because they start to get FOMO and start to get greedy or refuse to sell. And so I think you just have to be willing to sell some when things are going up and be willing to buy some when things are going down. A lot easier said than done. Do you personally, when uh, the market changes from bull to bear or bear to bull, how you figure out the timeline of it and how to play it. Because let's say it goes from bull to bear. If you don't acknowledge that it's a it's a bear market soon enough, you could end up losing a lot of capital trading the wrong way. Am, am I right on that? 
Yeah, you're right. But I think as a long-term investor, it's all noise and not signal. So even if you've held from 69,000 right now, sure, that sucks. And you could have sold and you can question your decisions. But if you continue to dollar cost average down and price does end up in the hundreds of thousands, it won't matter. So I think it's all about low time preference versus high time preference. For me, and it was a year ago, I'll never forget because I was at Art Basel in Miami uh, I was with basically everyone from FTX and Coinbase and all these other crypto influencers at a party and Diplo was DJing and nobody's phone worked and people started screaming across this crowded club that Bitcoin was crashing. I think it was December 4th or something. And that was the day that Bitcoin basically went from, you know, it, it was trading in the low 50s and dropped all the way to like 42. And because nobody had a phone service, it was like, it's at 50, but it was actually at 47. And it was then it's at 49, but it was actually at 42. That was the day for me that the bear market started. So I was not calling the top at 69K. I did not believe that it was over. I thought the drop to that sort of 50-something, 52,000, 53,000 level was just a normal retrace. But that had been the high you know, uh, of the year before the run back up uh, or of the middle of the year. It was the high sort of of September or August. I can't remember specifically. And so that to me was the key support. I was like, well, if this actually breaks down, I think we're in for a sustained bear market. So I basically flipped bullish to bearish on that day when it broke below 52,000 or whatever. That ultimately was to me still that major signal. And so that would be sort of the same for me in the 25,000 or 32,000 range now where we start to make higher highs. So how will you next bull run go about identifying the most profitable trends? Like it seems like there have been defined trends of, of things that do better than others. Uh, over time and yeah, DeFi summer, NFT summer, metaverse fall, those sort of trends. I think they're more obvious in crypto than anywhere else. And it becomes very, very easy to trade when you see massive narrative shifts sort of into these distinct buckets within the crypto space. It's really easy in a bull market. I've, I've said this before already, but everyone's a genius in a bull market. If you just buy a bunch of stuff, if you're in a true crypto bull market and just wait, eventually your thing is going to go up. But that said, you know, finding what is in vogue and what's on trend at that exact moment, and then choosing something within that bucket that hasn't really moved as much of the, uh, as the others tends to be a very, very good strategy. So maybe one metaverse coin has moved massively, but there's three that haven't yet, but everyone's talking about metaverses. Well, just put a little money into those three and, and wait, and largely you're going to be successful. In the past, there was a rotation in the crypto market that sort of went from Bitcoin right? Bitcoin would go up. You wanted to be in Bitcoin because alts would get wrecked. That goes back to our earlier conversation about how you would see your Bitcoin balance dropping and wouldn't realize it because Bitcoin's Mm -hmm. outperforming. So you want to be in Bitcoin when it makes its big moves and not as much in altcoins. But then assuming Bitcoin went up and goes sideways, that's when the money starts to generally filter down from Bitcoin to large caps, to mid caps, to small caps. Then you get back to Bitcoin, it rages again. I mean, that's the bull market strategy, whether that repeats in the future, I have no idea, but that has generally been the playbook in the past. I think also when talking about bull and bear markets, it's important to note that Bitcoin has, whether people like it or not, I mean, I've been resistant to the idea, but it does generally trade on somewhat of a four-year cycle, which is obviously, you know, you have the halving and then six-ish months later, you start the bull run and then you have sort of the correction and bear market and then you bottom and things start to rise again slowly into the next halving and you repeat it all again. Well, historically on the four-year cycle, this right now, like November, December, January, choose October, this 
time period generally is when we've seen all of the historical bottoms, basically two years uh, after the halving, et cetera. So we have a lot of historical precedent that regardless of what's happening in the world around us, that this would have been the normal cycle anyways, perhaps price just went lower than we would have expected. So what, what do you think about the four-year cycle like continuing forward? Well, I mean, the halving makes a lot of sense mathematically, right? You increase the difficulty by double to create new coins, to mine new coins. And so you have a drastic reduction in supply. And as long as demand remains the same, demand can even go down as long as it doesn't go down in half. So as long as you have continued demand and supply is reducing, it's basically mathematically guaranteed that the basic, most basic economic understanding of supply and demand that price should continue up. So I think that uh, we will see another bull run, even if we have to wait that long after the next halving. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're of the mindset that things are are going to do X, Y, Z on a chart regardless, but it's just whatever happens in the news, people are going to fit that to the narrative and just try and form fit it. Largely a fair assessment. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Like that, because I know that's that's what you think you're saying. Yes. Uh, Listen, the news is real. Right. Uh, and, and I don't think that there's like a grand conspiracy to make sure that we get bad news two years after the halving or anything like that. Right. And now I think it's been 924, 900, you know, almost 930, 940 days since the last halving, somewhere in there, you know, between 900 and 950. But I do think that what is more the case is that when things are good, you tend to see more positive stories because there's FOMO and people on board. And when things are bad, people pile on and print negative stories, right? Mm -hmm. It's just the loudest narratives are the prevailing ones that tend to match the price. Unfortunately, price, especially in crypto, tends to lead what kind of narratives we hear. Right. Makes sense to me. Um, So I think that that just about wraps it up. Thanks so much, uh, Scott, for coming on. I I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, man. It was a pleasure. I don't get to talk about a lot of these things so often, so it was fun to sort of hash that out and think in real time to answer all those questions. Thanks for tuning in to Crypto Trading Secrets with BJ Pyrus. We'll see you next time.